Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is great to be with you. The last time I was in this space, uh, it was a recording on a Saturday, and then the next day we got snowed out and we didn't have services. So I'm so glad you're here. This is way more fun having uh, people in the room. Uh, my name is Jeremy, and it's an honor to be with you guys this weekend. We're continuing the series that you guys have been going through on resetting relationships. And today we're going to look at Romans 13. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get those out. And uh, if you've been in this series the last few weeks, you know we're just working our way through and, and looking at how these different chapters in the book of Romans helps us to reset how do we interact with those around us. And we're going to see this today. Now, as you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about my last week. Uh, last weekend was Halloween. Now, I don't know. I know Christians have a lot of views on Halloween. Uh, for us, uh, it's just a simple way, number one, to connect with our kids. We have five uh, kids that are little. That's why I travel a lot. And, uh, and then we also know it's a great way to connect with our neighbors, and that's hard to do. And, uh, and so we, hey, everybody's out for one night. Let's just enjoy time with our kids. Let's get to know our community. And so what we started doing a while ago is we thought, let's have a family theme uh, for Halloween that all of us agree to, and then we all become characters of that same theme. Which, as you can imagine, is a little tricky when you have seven people that you're getting costumes for. It rules out uh, some, you know, those stories that only have a few characters. You have to have at least seven uh, that, that, you know, make the story work. And uh, our oldest now is, is, is actually turning 13 next week. And, and so he was like, you know, Dad, I think it's time. I think I'm graduating out of Halloween. I'm not, I'm too cool for this now. You know, it's, it's past. And I'm like, all right, bud, you don't, you don't have to do it. We'll just have six of us. But then as we were brainstorming the theme, uh, one of them was like, hey, we should be Harry Potter characters. That would be so fun. And my soon-to-be 13-year-old's like, hey, if we do that, I'm in. And I'm like, okay, then we got to do it. And so uh, we decided we're all going to get decked out. We all became Harry Potter characters. And this was us at Halloween. <laughs> I'm obviously Dumbledore here. Uh, I don't know if you know the Harry Potter series, but uh, we, had, we had, you know, Harry Potter covered and Hermione and Draco and, and all of them. That's Hedwig the Owl, in case you're wondering what the little guy was. And so we had all of this, and here's the best part about the way we do Halloween, is that, you know, when you're walking house to house, you know, people are kind of usually only seeing a few of us at a time. Uh, I have, we have a little golf cart for our family. I was driving the golf cart around, and, and so people would see like one or two of us, and they'd be like, oh... Harry Potter, that's cool. And then they would start to see more of us, and they're going, oh my goodness, you guys are all connected. And it was like watching this epiphany as they realized this is cool, and you're all characters. And it's like, it just happened over and over again. They'd see a few of us, then they'd see a few more. And, and it was just really a fun thing to watch as, as it dawns on people, like your whole family is in this same theme, and, and it makes it even more enjoyable when people are trying to figure out, especially, you know, most people are a little hazy on Harry Potter characters, so they're trying to figure out, okay, so if you're this person, who are you? And, and it was so fun watching it dawn on people once you got a bigger picture of like, oh, all seven of them are Harry Potter characters. Now, why do I say that? This is actually uh, a discipline that I have learned in reading Scripture, that sometimes when you read Scripture, you read a verse at a time, and you go, okay, what does that mean? And then you look around and you go, oh, it connects to that verse. And then it connects to that verse. And, and then you start to connect it. And it's just like people realizing, oh, all seven of you go together. We can read the Bible like that. Like all these verses go together. It's not just one uh, verse or one idea or one passage that, that they connect together. And, and we're going to see why that is so important to read Scripture that way as we get to chapter 13 today. 
And so if you're with me in Romans 13, we're going to read together. And this is, uh, this is a doozy of a passage. I, I, I've made jokes with Scott. I'm like, you know what? You pick the perfect times to, to travel because you leave me with some of the hardest. I had Amos uh, not too long ago, and I'm like, really? You're going to be gone for Amos? I mean, like some of the things that he gives me, to his credit, he says that he gives me date options, not theme options, which is true, but I just feel like he should tell me what the themes are when he gives me the date. So th- there it is. I've, I've said my piece. All right. So we're going to get into Romans 13 today. And if you know Romans 13, you're like, wow, this is going to be interesting. I'm, I'm curious what this guy is going to say. And, and so am I. So let's just figure out what happens as we get into Romans 13. Verse 1, Paul writes this, everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them. And give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So you have all these verses uh, about, you know, what do we do essentially as Christians living in a government, living within uh, the reign and the rule of a government. Now, Romans 13 was written by the Apostle Paul. And so as we begin to understand what should we do with these words, and you can imagine why these words are charged and why they're politicized, why they're often used in, in very extreme situations, you go, well, how do we know what to do with these words? Well, I would suggest this as a beginning point. Let's look at what Paul did, okay? So the, the Apostle Paul is the one who writes this. Let's figure out what did he do? How did he live? And that would give us a glimpse into how he interpreted these words because Paul lived under the authority of Rome. So how did Paul understand how to live out Romans 13 as the author of it in, in the way that he lived out his, his time with Rome? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Paul was charged with crimes by the state, beaten multiple times, jailed, and eventually executed by Rome. Which if you're like, you know, paying attention here, you're going, okay, that makes Romans 13 interesting. Like, like that's what happened to Paul. That's the author of who wrote it. And that's how he lived it out. So, so what's going on here? In fact, Paul writes Romans 13 from prison and under the authority of, of Rome. And so you go, how does, this, how does this play out for Paul? What's going on here? So I would suggest if we see Paul as the cheerleader for Rome, as the cheerleader for, yeah, just go along with everything, uh, we're probably missing the contextual uh, uh, application here, right? We're, we're missing what actually happened in the life of Paul, what Paul was dealing with. And so we should pause a moment and go, there's, there's got to be something more going on. There's got to be a little bit more there. 
And, and so to explore chapter 13, I want to look at uh, two really bad applications that, that are very common in how we apply these. And I hear these a lot, and I want to suggest that neither one of these, uh, I, I'm going to submit to you, does justice to Romans 13. Now, at the end of this, uh, I just encourage you to consider what I'm about to say. If you disagree with me, Godspeed. Go for it. Uh, go with you and Jesus. But I'm going to argue at least uh, two things that I, I hear used a lot that I don't think are the point of Romans 13, and I'll explore why. Okay? So bad application number one. We must always submit to the government no matter what. Okay? Uh, just a blanket endorsement. Whatever the government says is good, always go with it. Now, here's what's tricky. Uh, depending on uh, your uh, views of uh, the United States, and depending on your views of the current president, okay, not previous president, the current president, often determines the way you read Romans 13. See, when we are living under a president we like, we're way more tempted to say, yes, Romans 13 means we, we completely agree with our government. But as soon as that other guy gets elected, then we're like, whoa, 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 Romans 13 doesn't mean that. It does not mean I have to submit to this person. And, and so a lot, a lot of it shapes, is shaped by, do we like the current president? Now, I would say, suggest, again, if your view of the current president is shaping your application of Romans 13, you're probably missing the boat a little bit. It's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be deeper than do you like the current president or not. And so we might say, okay, well, let's just imagine a, a, a perfect scenario. Imagine the, the best president that you can think of or your favorite president ever, they're in office. Uh, would you then go, yes, we should fully submit to the government? We might want to use the United States as that positive example. And, and we're often tempted to as Christians. Yeah, look, we should, we should do it because we're the, we're the good ones. But if we're going to use this argument, we're going to use Romans 13 in this way, it has to be used for every government. It has to be used for Christians living all around the world throughout all different times in history. So would we still want to apply that logic to Christians living in North Korea? Would you still say to a Christian brother or sister in North Korea, hey, Romans 13, you got to do everything. You got to fully submit to that government. Hopefully there'd be a little check in your spirit like, oh, I don't know about that. Or, or let's go and throughout history. What about Christians living in Nazi Germany? Would you tell a Christian living in Nazi Germany, hey, Romans 13, I mean, you, you got to submit. There would probably be some check that you go, yeah, I, I don't know about it. Because if we give government a, 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 a just green light based on a, a, an initial reading of Romans 13, we then empower governments to do whatever they want to do in the name of God. This is actually historically what happens, and it's a very scary place to be. In fact, you may not realize this, but this is how Hitler understood his authority. Now, I'm going I'm to give you a, a quote today. Uh, Scott has told me has never been done here before. I'm going to quote Hitler, okay? Now, before I give you a Hitler quote, I'm not agreeing with it. I'm simply going to show you how this logic is applied in real time, okay? So here's a first, Hitler being quoted from the stage. Hitler in his book Mein Kampf said this, I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. Let that sink in. The, the, the guy that did what we you know, use as the benchmark of evil, that guy justified it in the eyes of, of God. It, it wasn't in his view, it wasn't, hey, I'm, I'm doing this evil and God is going to be mad at me. No, no, no. He thought God had endorsed him to do that. 
And this is often what happens when we just give that initial reading to Romans 13. Of Is Paul just saying, go along with whatever? Because if we read it like that, we end up with a really sticky situation. And that's why patriotism as a Christian can be a little bit challenging. Because patriotism can quickly lead to nationalism, which can quickly lead to an us versus them type of thinking. And if you're a Christian, there's no room in the name of Jesus for us versus them type thinking. It's a very different way of thinking. And and Paul is navigating the early church through what they had to deal with. Now, we know that Paul did not blindly submit to his government. And you go, how do we know that? Well, it's actually really easy to know that. The way Paul lived out the ideas in Romans 13 caused Rome to kill him. That's how we know. Well, how do we know that application number one is a bad application, Jeremy? Because Paul didn't do it. Paul didn't live that way. And so if we read Romans 13 and go, this is what it means that if we like the president, if we like the government, we do every single thing they say, Paul will go, no, that's not actually what I'm doing because that's not how Paul lived his life. And in fact, you can keep this going, go, well, yeah, you look at a lot of the early church and uh, Jesus in particular, this is not how they interacted with the government. In fact, there's one uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek way to say it. Mace Menenga said, maybe if Jesus would have just read Romans 13, he wouldn't have gotten himself killed. Right? So you go, oh, yeah, it can't mean that. It can't be that, that, that easy reading that we often want to pull from Romans 13 because Jesus was killed by Rome. Uh, Paul was killed by Rome. The, these leaders were killed by the government that they're saying that we should submit to. So, so what's going on here? You go, this, this is confusing. All right, let me confuse you more. Bad application number two. We have a spiritual mandate for war. This is often how the church has used this. Crusades and, and the like have used this type of thinking going, Romans 13 means we are called to go and eradicate the enemy and, and wipe them out in the name of God. This is, you know, what we do in Romans 13. But here's, here's a, uh, I'm going to start to move toward a solution here, okay? So if you're feeling some dissonance, like, well, what are we doing here? Let's start moving there. We cannot read Romans 13 without Romans 12. Okay, which is why I'm glad you didn't jump and start the series with Romans 13. Uh, you started earlier. You, you got through Romans 12 already, hopefully. Um, but you can't read Romans 13 without Romans 12. This goes back to uh, our, our family at Halloween. If you only look at one of our characters, you may not guess it. You may not figure out, depending on which of us you, you looked at, hey, what is the theme? But if you saw all seven of us, you're pretty likely to figure it out, even if you've not read the books or even seen the movies, right? And here's what I would tell you. If you just read Romans 13 in isolation, you might have a really hard time making sense of it. But if you read it as a continuation of the thoughts that Paul is weaving together on relationships, by the way, if you continue that, you go, oh, I begin to understand what Paul is saying. Now, Hopefully you remember chapter 12, in case you weren't here for that or you need a refresher. Let's look at a few of the things that Paul said in chapter 12 that pertain to ways we might apply chapter 13. Uh, Verse 2 says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Okay, so like if you're going to follow Jesus, you are not to go along with and be like the other people in this world. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Okay, when we're attacked, we attack back, right? No, chapter 12 says, no, you bless them when people persecute you. Verse 17, never pay back evil with evil. 
Okay. Uh, Verse 19. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Verse 20. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Verse 17. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Now, because of how extreme we often take Romans 13, this may look like schizophrenia. Like, how does Paul say all this in, verse, in chapter 12 and then go on to chapter 13? And if it looks like that to you, it's probably because you're trying to isolate chapter 13. But we read it in the same context as what Paul has already been saying. Paul's not disagreeing with himself. He's applying it in a different way. And I would suggest that these verses do not lend themselves to the normal way that we often read chapter 13. See, historically, Paul is trying to navigate the early church through an incredible, volatile, and dangerous regime known as Rome. He's trying to figure out how does this church emerge in the midst of this regime that is waiting to uh, strike us, that is waiting to eradicate us. How are we to emerge in the midst of this when we follow a different God than Rome does? How do we live out our faith in this way? And Paul says, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to live at peace with the government, and we're going to model enemy love. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to be at peace with the government, and we're going to live out enemy love. And and, and this is the radical type of submission that Paul is talking about that, that gives us the context to get into 13 and go, oh, that's how we have relationships with one another. We, we, we love our enemies. And so as Christians, I would suggest we should read chapters 12 and 13 together. We always hold those together when we're trying to make sense of what Paul is saying in chapter 13. A number of Christian leaders have said it like this. Brooksy Cavey, as a pastor, says, We do not fault the state, the government, for fulfilling its role. That's Romans 13. That's what they're called to do. We simply call all Christians to live up to the different role that God gives the church. That's Romans 12. Paul instructs the church, hey, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's how you're supposed to live. And here's how you do it within a government that has authority over you. You you are called to be different. You are called to be those who love your enemies in the midst of that. Or another passage like this. Christians are bound by Romans 12, not empowered by Romans 13, right? So Romans 12 gives us the context of how to live out Romans 13. And when you read them together, it it gives you a very different way of understanding what Paul is trying to get at. And it allows us to contextually make sense of what Paul did, of what Jesus did, of what the early church did, and and gives us a a clue as to what's going on. And it's almost like a a behind-the-scenes look that you go, I'll never read Romans 13 again the same way. Like when I read it with 12 in mind, I'll never read it and be tempted to those bad applications again. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, there's, you know, the, the Jurassic Park movies. I don't know if you guys are, are fans of those. My kids are all obsessed with them. Uh, but for our little guys, uh, those dinosaurs are a little bit scary. And, and so, you know, when we have to, like, be really careful. How much do we let them see of this, even though they want it badly? Because it can really, like, haunt them, you know, when it's bedtime. And all of a sudden, they're worried about dinosaurs coming in. And, and, and I can understand if you're a kid, uh, that would be really scary to be imagining these dinosaurs. And, you know, I've probably had a few dinosaur dreams in my time. You know, it's, it's a, kind of a scary idea. But here's what's funny is if, if you think about them and you go, yeah, let's just, let's just go along with the movies. These are real. These could be, you know, popping in at any moment. That's a very scary thought. 
But if you look behind the scenes and go, how did they make those movies? How did they make these dinosaurs come to life? It gives you a very different perspective. Like, they have some behind-the-scenes footage of making these movies that, that shows you that there's actors. Like, for the Raptors, there are actors playing these parts, and, and I just think it changes it once you see that. For example, check out this picture. <laughs> Does that not make it a little less scary, right? When you see, like, these four guys in these, you know, spandex suits— like, these are the raptors that then come to life. I, I just think it's humorous once you see that. And so I can imagine, you know, if one of my kids was really having a hard time, like, if, you, if I could show them this photo, they go, oh, those are not real. No, those are not real. You know, these are, these are movies that they're bringing to life this way. And, and if you see that, it allows you to watch the movie a, a little bit differently. And I, I think we need to have that same kind of reading of Scripture. That when we get to a passage that, that seems confusing, you go, yeah, I'm not sure about this one. This gets used in some really bizarre ways. We should always look behind the scenes and go, what's going on? And again, with this one, it's so easy to go back one chapter and go, oh, chapter 12 gives us the clue to figure this out. And if chapter 12 wasn't enough, Paul's going to go right back to relationships. So after these first seven verses that are all about how do we live under the authority of a government, Paul's going to go right back to relationship in verse 8. He says this, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. Again, this is all the same thought. Paul didn't write in chapters, okay? Paul just wrote. We added the chapters later. So verse 8 is just a continuation of this thought. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirement of God's law. I love that idea. Love does no wrong to others. So as Paul bookends, he got chapter 12 with enemy love, you know, how do we really do this? Verses in 13 get a little dicey, a little interesting, and it goes right back to here's how we do this. We love our neighbor. We do no wrong to one another. And Paul returns us to what Jesus said. When, when Jesus tried to boil down all of the Old Testament, right? there's a whole bunch of laws. How do we know? Jesus is like, you love God, and then he says, you love your neighbor as yourself. Like, this, this is how we summarize it. And Paul brings us back to this teaching. This is how we are to live out uh, under uh, the authority of a government. We are to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so we go, okay, well, what, what kind of love is this? Well, love doesn't conquer Love doesn't kill, love doesn't control, love doesn't retaliate, love doesn't seek revenge. These are not things that love does. And so we are called to be those who love, who radically love one another. Uh, the author Derek Flood has said this about Romans 13. Paul is telling the church in Rome to resist via the means of overcoming evil with good, not through the means of retaliation and, and insurrection, a way he knows will lead to mass bloodshed. So Paul's saying, look, Rome's going to abuse you as Christians. And when they abuse you, you're not going to fight back. When they abuse you, you're not going to take to the streets and protest and, and try to take them down. You're not going to try to kill you know, centurions when you see them in the streets. No, you're going you're to model a way of enemy love. 
And this way will not get a mass movement of Rome trying to take out the early church. It's this really bizarre way that Paul is instructing this church to live under the dominant authority of Rome. And so today as we figure out, okay, how do we apply Romans 13? We need to ask, does our application allow us to love our neighbor as ourselves? That's what Paul gets back to. And so any application, I would suggest this, any healthy, good application of Romans 13 should allow you to love your neighbor as yourself. And then that gets us back to Luke 15. Well, who's my neighbor? That's the question they asked Jesus. Who's my neighbor then? Okay, I gotta, I gotta love my neighbor as well. Who? Who does that include? Well, I would say it includes those who physically live near you, right? Like your, your neighbors, like those are, those are included. It would include Americans, all Americans, right? Those who vote differently than you, those who have a different political lean than you, it would include them, like that would be your neighbor as well. In fact, it'd be people of, of every country would be our neighbor if we're following Jesus, right? Like, like we have a, a bond to them, uh, no matter what they believe, no matter how they live, no matter what they choose to do. Our neighbor would include people we don't like. Th- th- those would be our neighbors. Our neighbors would even uh, apply to the people that we consider to be enemies. Those would be our neighbors too. So can we create an application for Romans 13 that allows us to relationally reset and truly love our neighbor? To truly love all the examples of people that we might come in contact with and who might treat us in a variety of ways. I want to close by just dwelling on this phrase that Paul uses. Love does no wrong to others. Such a simple statement. And yet if we want to reset relationships, this is an incredible guide. This is an incredible tool. This is an incredible measurement to know whether or not we're doing it. Because anything that creates harm cannot be love, according to Paul. Any way that we harm one another. So how do we just live this out? Love does no wrong to others. How do we live in such a way that we would do that? And so I want to close with some next step questions for you. Uh, I know Scott normally gives you applications. I'm just going to give you a few questions uh, that you can discern between you and the Holy Spirit this week. Hey, how do I live this out? How do I figure out how to make sense of Romans 13 in my relationships? So here we go. Here's some next step questions. Have I created room in my theology to harm others? It's a question to, to wrestle with. Have I created a way to justify some harm that I want to do to, to someone else? And here's why I think that's a great question. That is how Romans 13 is often used, as a way to justify the harm that we want to do to someone else. And so I think we can ask ourselves the question, have I created some way to explain why I'm okay, or why I'm justified, or why I'm even called to treat someone in such a way that I would bring them harm. And I think that is a way against love. According to Paul, love does no harm. So if we're going to go off the same logic that Paul's going here, we cannot use this earlier part of Romans 13 to create harm to any other person. Are we doing this? Are we creating room? And are we, you know, removing love then from the equation? Uh, Second question. Am I excluding myself from wrath? 
Now again, notice that Paul talks about, hey, the government has its role. Like, that's great. But then Romans 12 is, you have a role as a Christian. So you're to do your role. Oh, okay. So that means we say, hey, God is going to figure out this whole wrath. God's got it. But as Christians, we're not a part of it. We exclude ourselves from that. We say, hey, that we leave room for the wrath of God. That's Paul's phrase. We're not going to participate in it. We are called to be people of love in a world that does not operate on love. Which is why oftentimes if you literally try to apply things that Jesus said, people will call you naive. They'll go, oh, that's cute that you believe that. Because it doesn't seem to make sense a lot of times. Because we are people of love in a world that does not operate on love. And so you got to ask, is there something you're trying to make right in your life right now by getting even with someone else? Oh, this situation is bad. And so if I just get even with them, then it'll, it'll be right. Then justice will be served. you got to ask, am I excluding myself? You're not leaving room for the wrath of God if you're getting even. Am I excluding myself? Hey, love does no harm to others. That, that's what I am called to do. I love what Scott said earlier in the series. If God gave you mercy, then how does that change how you treat people? Yeah, but they don't deserve it. I mean, they, what they did is, I know, I know. But if God gave you mercy, and God didn't hold the things against you that you've done, how does that allow us, how does that reset us to say, hey, I can extend grace and love to someone else even when I don't think they deserve it? Yeah, it, it allows us to be the people of love. It allows us to treat people in a way that, apart from Jesus, it, it wouldn't make any sense to treat people like that. I mean, think about how many movies we watch are based in revenge stories. We love these stories. And again, I'm guilty. I love a good revenge story. And the movie starts, you did something to this person, and the rest of the movie's like, he's going to get you back. You know, he's coming for you. And we love this. This is a plot of so many stories. And it's tempting to get into that uh, as well. But are we excluding ourselves from this game and say, no, we're called to love. We're called to be people who love radically. And final question, am I living out Romans 12 in a Romans 13 world? This is the challenge. Am I living out all of the specific things that, that Paul writes about how Christians are to live? Very specific. It's not like, hmm, I wonder what he means in chapter 12. No, he lays it out. It's very specific of what it looks like to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. Are we doing that in the midst of a world that has governments? A world that has a whole bunch of other authorities that are at play. Are we still living out what it means to be Christ followers? What it means to be people of love? Uh, I love what the author Caitlin Schess says. I'm increasingly convinced that the problem is not that Christians are too political, but that we're insufficiently political. Political isn't a dirty word. We don't need to hide from it. Politics is about a, our public life together and the choices that affect our communities. I love this line. There's nothing more biblical than figuring out how to love our neighbors. That is the politics you and I are called to. How do we love our neighbors? That is what Paul is leading the early church through in Romans 13. How do we love our neighbors in the midst of Rome? In the midst of what we're going to deal with together. And so this empowers us. We don't only quote Romans 13 when we agree with our government, when we like our president. We can quote it all the time because we know that it means something deeper than that. 
that means how we are to love our neighbor. That is a relationship reset in the midst of some really challenging cultural applications. And this is a passage about love. This is Paul teaching us how do you love when it's really hard to do. And because Paul is, I I believe, in Romans 13, all about love, I want to close with perhaps Paul's most famous passage about love and let these words sink in as this is what we should aspire to. This is what we hold on to. This is what we say, yes, we will be people that live this. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient and kind. Now, these are the words you're going, oh, I've heard that at a wedding before. Yeah, this isn't about weddings, okay? This is about how we follow Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pull it out of weddings. I've used it in weddings too. I'm going to pull it out of weddings, put it back into a real life context. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. That's so beautiful. Again, r- read Romans 13 and the 1 Corinthians 13. These are all these are the same guys writing this. Okay, so as we live this out, okay, love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Even an impressive and violent regime like Rome. The love of the early church endured through that. And we inherited it today. Which means that there is no government, there is no situation that a, a simple willingness to love our neighbor would not endure through. That is the radical message of, of Romans 13. That if we would be serious about loving our neighbor as ourselves, truly living this out, that we can endure anything. And church, that is an incredible hope that we carry around with us. That is a reset button we should hit often. Hey, this is frustrating. This is hard. This is confusing. Reset. I'm just going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love my neighbor when it's hard because love can endure all things. What would God do with a church and a community that loved like that. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you teach us how to do this? Would you show us how to be people who deeply love those around us, who live in submission to the authority above us, but we live differently. We don't retaliate. We don't seek justice. We don't try to make things right and get even. We model enemy love because you've called us to it you modeled it on the cross by dying for your enemies rather than getting even with your enemies so jesus may we live in that same example today may we be radical representation of you in the ways in which we love our neighbors both physically around us and as we broaden that as you did in the the story in luke 15 to include anybody any other human made in your image, we can love as our neighbor. And in doing so, we would literally change the world for you. May you infuse us. May you help us to reset our relationships with a love like that. We pray in Jesus' name. And all all God's people said, amen.